Um, so guess what we're going we're gonna to talk about today? We're going to talk about the way the church relates um, to our government. But we're not going to do it the way you think. Um, my policy as a pastor is you are never going to hear me stand behind this pulpit and endorse a candidate. It's never going to happen. You're never going to hear me stand behind this pulpit and endorse a party. It's never going to happen. You're never going to see me invite a politician to stand behind this pulpit. It's never going to happen. That being said, we live in a world in which God has ordained government. And we have to live under that government while we are here. So we as Christians ought to live under that government and participate in that government in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And the Bible speaks to this on a regular basis. So I figured if you're going to hear about it every day for the next 48 hours, you might as well hear from it from God's Word too. Hear what He has to say about it. So if you will turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, while you're flipping there, I want to share with you, my, my wife and I went home to, to the, the town I grew up in the last couple of days, and I was walking through my mama's kitchen, probably looking for food, because that's what I do when I go to my mama's house. Um, I think, is that what everybody does when they go to mama's house? You walk through the kitchen and look for food. Um, so uh, I was walking through her kitchen looking for food, and on top of the little rotisserie, which did not contain a chicken, there's a little box from AncestryDNA.com. And I looked at my mom. I said, did you get this thing? Do y'all know, know the little DNA kits that I'm talking about? If you, if you haven't seen these things before, you buy them from a company called either Ancestry. You know, if you've ever heard of Ancestry.com, they do this now. You can, you can buy one from them. You can buy one from a company called 23andMe. That you, I don't know if you spit or you put a hair in it or something like that. And you send it off. And they analyze your DNA and tell you you're 73% Italian or, you know, X percent from this region, this region, this region. And they market it as you can find your roots. You can find what people you really belong to. And there was a commercial I saw this morning while I was getting ready where this lady said, I found out that I was 73% Italian. So I went out and started learning Italian and I bought some Italian boots. And I'm like, you don't know anything about Italy. You live in Peoria. <laughs> you have, there's nothing Italian about you except your genes came from some people who lived there 400 years ago. There's nothing about you that's Italian. But the reason that this marketing has been so successful is because in 2018, people have a dire need for some reason to, to figure out who they are. To feel like they belong to some sort of group, to some sort of family, to some sort of something that's bigger than yourself. People feel like they have to have that. And there's a good reason for that. It's because we're made to need that. We're made to need that community, to need that. But outside of Christ, we don't know where to find it. So folks do things like they spit in tubes and send them off to a company that does literally God knows what with your genetic information. 
I, I don't know. I don't want to give some random company my DNA. I don't want to do it. We do things like that to figure out maybe somewhere down the line, maybe my ancestors were Italian or, or we, we, we associate ourselves with this and we say this is my community or this is my people or this is my group because we're desperate to feel like we're part of something. And one of the, one of the most dangerous ways we do that is politically. That we line ourselves up under a party or maybe a particular official or a particular politician and we almost elevate them to the level of our God or our head of our community and we put so much hope in this party or this person or this platform and we say this is what's going to solve the problems. This is what's going to solve the issues. And I heard an old preacher say this, and this is probably the best sum up of the way this sermon's going to go. I told you it's going to deal with government, but not the way you expect. Jesus Christ did not come to take sides. He came to take over. He did not come to pick the right or the left. He came to sit down on His throne. So when Tuesday comes around, y'all, there's some crazy people in this country. Amen. On both sides. Amen. Don't be one. Because the one person that we line up under that is the head of our people, that is the head of our community group, is also the head of the church. And His name is Jesus Christ. And wherever the vote goes Tuesday, you ain't voting Him off the throne, y'all. He's there. He's going to rule. He does rule. He is ruling. He has ruled. He will rule. So, I want us to dive into Mark 12. Which by the end of this sermon, you will debate whether or not it was written in A.D. 32 or whether or not it was written in 2018 because it looks like it happened yesterday, frankly. We'll see that there is a difference between that which belongs to Caesar and that which belongs to God. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word, let's look at Mark chapter 12 verses 13 through 17. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Oh my goodness, can you just hear the, the venom dripping off of this? Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. You do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Father, I pray that we would approach civics and government and politics like Christians. And that we would think more about you than we think about party or platform. 
And Lord, I pray that Stapleton Baptist Church would have the reputation not of being Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Independent, but of being faithful. And Lord, we look to your word to know your will. And we trust you, our King, to lead us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I'm a little amped up today, y'all. Just a little bit. Um, Because there's frankly nothing that frustrates me more as a pastor than an unholy marriage of religion and politics. Um, It's just not biblical. Um, There is no such thing as God's party. There never has been. Let me dive in and show you from Scripture. So we're in Mark chapter 12 today, and Jesus gets approached by the Pharisees and the Herodians. And we're told in verse 13, they're trying to catch him in his words. Now this event that we're looking at happens as the third in a series of events that are recorded together in the same order in both Mark and Luke. In both Mark and Luke, the same three events are recorded in the same order, which means they're all connected, and they're all connected in the same way. The first thing that happens in this series of three events is that Jesus' authority is questioned. That if you go back to Mark 11... Starting in verse 27, Jesus is in the temple and the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders come to him and they say, we want to know where your authority to teach has come from. In other words, they're saying, hey, we're the ones that usually hand out the religious teaching licenses around here. And none of us seem to remember giving you the right to walk around in our temple and start teaching people. And so we want you to explain yourself and tell us where did you get this authority because you certainly didn't get it from us. And Jesus turns it around because he knows what they're trying to do. And he says, let me ask you a question. I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask you a question. And if you'll answer my question, I'll answer yours. And his question was, John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or was it from men? Answer me. And they go back and they call the huddle and they say, okay, how are we going to deal with this? Because if we say it's from heaven, well, now they're in trouble because they've spent all their time telling people that John was a crazy man. And he's out there living in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey and wearing animal skins. And they rejected him. So if they say, if, if, if we go back to him and say it's from heaven then he's going to ask us in front of everybody, why didn't you believe him? But if we go back there and we say it's for men, well, then we're going to get stoned because everybody in the temple believes that he's a prophet, even if we don't. So they came back to Jesus and said, we don't know. (coughs) And so Jesus says, well, if you won't answer me, I won't answer you. So first, they question Jesus' authority and Jesus calls them out You don't recognize my authority because you don't recognize the authority of anybody else God has sent. Including John. 
that I'm just the, the last in a long string of people from God that you haven't listened to. And so then, the, okay, so you see that in Mark 11, 27 through 33. Then you can find it in Luke, in Luke 21 through 8. So if you want to know where that is. The second event was Jesus turned around right after this happens and tells a parable. And if you're coming to us on Sunday nights, we're not going to have it tonight. But the next Sunday night you come to, this is going to be the parable I'm preaching on. That Jesus turns around and aims a parable at them and tells a parable of a man who planted a vineyard and then went off into a far country and let it out to vine dressers. And when it came time for the vineyard to produce fruit, he sent back servant after servant after servant and they beat them, uh, sent them running, beat them. And finally he sends his son and says, they'll respect my son if I send him to the vineyard that I planted myself. That they go and they see the sun coming and they say, all right, the master is obviously not coming back himself. He sent his son. So if we kill his son, Jewish law says, if there's nobody to claim the land, then the first person who gets there can claim it and they can have all of it for themselves. So they kill the son. And they think because they have killed the last of the owner's messengers, they get to have the vineyard for themselves. And Jesus says, oh no, you've got it wrong. The master is not dead. The master is going to come and destroy those vine dressers and he's going to hand the vineyard to somebody else. And they get mad because they know that he has told this parable about them. That's Mark 12, 12. So in other words, you didn't respect John's authority. You don't respect my authority. And because you don't respect our authority, you don't respect God's authority. So God's going to take the spiritual leadership of this country away from you and he's going to hand it to somebody else. And they're mad because they've been embarrassed. And if there's anything a politician can't stand, it's to be publicly embarrassed. So what do they do? They go to embarrass him back. So they call the huddle again. And they say, all right, guys, we got to take this joker out. How are we going to do it? So they cook up this plan. Which brings us to our passage today, which I want us to see two truths from. And the first is that Jesus isn't on the right or the left. He is on the throne. So you look at verse 13. They send him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now, who are these folks? We talk about the Pharisees a lot if you've read the Gospels. The Pharisees generally are cast as the bad guys. though There, are, there were some good ones. There are some good Pharisees in, in uh, John 3. Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. You end up seeing him later on. He becomes faithful to Jesus. He had legitimate questions, but even he was too ashamed to go to Jesus in the daylight. He went to him at night. That Paul was a Pharisee before Paul was converted. So there are some Pharisees that end up being good guys, but on the whole, the Pharisees were generally portrayed as bad guys in the Gospels. Not so much... In first century culture. This is what the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says about Pharisees. That Josephus, who tells us he belongs to this sect, he was a Jewish historian, wrote toward the end of the first century that the Pharisees were extremely influential among the townsfolk. And all prayers and sacred rites of divine worship are performed according to their exposition. They're in charge. 
That if you worship, they're the ones telling you how. They're the ones telling you where. They're the ones giving you an example. This is the great tribute that the inhabitants of the cities, by practicing the highest ideal both in their way of living and in their discourse, have paid to the excellence of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were generally regarded as the conservative, originalist interpreters interpreters of this book. They were theologically conservative. They were politically conservative. They were the moral party that seemed to present themselves as God's party. Is this getting uncomfortable yet? So that's the Pharisees. Excuse me. That's the Pharisees. The Herodians, on the other hand, the Herodians and Sadducees, which the Sadducees were the theological and political liberals. The Herodians and the Sadducees would have been on the same side politically against the Pharisees. The former being pro-government, while the Pharisees were both anti-Hasmonean, so the Hasmoneans were a Jewish people group that had taken the throne, and anti-Herodian. Congruent with this, Matthew 16, 12 and Mark 8, 15 represent the Pharisees and the Sadducees slash Herodians as contrary parties opposing Jesus. So this is like the, the chief priests, scribes, and elders huddled up and they said, here's how we're going to get Jesus. We're going to get a bunch of the conservatives and we're going to get a bunch of the liberals who can't stand each other, but the only person they can't stand more than each other is the one person that's getting everybody's attention away from them. And we're going to send them after Jesus together. So the Pharisees and the Herodians are not on the same side for anything else other than to put Jesus down. So they come to him and they bring up a trap. They ask him in verse 14, we know that you're true. You care about no one. You don't respect people in public. Well, how do they know he doesn't respect the feelings of people in public when it comes to denouncing them? Well, because he just denounced them. Publicly. He embarrassed them. So they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not? So here's the trap. Normally you would think that taxes are not all that controversial. I mean, regardless of how much tax you think is appropriate, all of us, I think, would agree that some taxes are necessary. If you've ever had to call the police, taxes. If you've ever had to call the fire department, taxes. If you've ever had to, to have the government do anything, that's funded by taxes. So some taxes are appropriate. The question is usually how much. Not so in this passage. The tax in question was a tax levied by Caesar that was a tribute and it amounted to one denarius per year. Monetarily that meant to pay this tax one day out of 365 days you were working for Caesar. One day's wages. How many of y'all would love it if your taxes were the pay that you got for one day out of 365? Hey, yeah, that would be awesome. That'd be wonderful. I would dance my way to the post office to mail that check. The problem wasn't the amount. 
The problem wasn't that it was too high. The problem wasn't even so much that it was going to Rome. The problem was the money itself and what Caesar believed about himself. See, the portrait on the coin is the Greek word icon. It was a picture of Caesar. And the coin read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, the coin said, the person on this coin is the son of a god. And on the other side of the coin, it read Pontifex Maximus, which meant high priest. Now, if you think back to the Ten Commandments, what was the first one? Thou shalt have no other gods than me. And the second commandment was, Thou shalt not make a graven image to worship or bow down to it. Well, to pay this tax... You had to give a man who believed he was a god a coin that said he was the high priest of his father and a divine being on earth. So the Jews hated this tax. But if you didn't pay it, guess who got mad? Caesar. And guess what Caesar had control of? The Roman military the most powerful force on planet earth in the first century. So the trap was this. If Jesus comes out in favor of the tax, he loses the respect of the Jewish people because he's basically endorsing a false god. Wasn't true, but that's the way it would play. I know y'all have never seen a politician say something knowing that it was false because they knew the way it would be interpreted. It happens. So that, that's their play on that side. The other side is that if Jesus says, don't pay it, yeah, the Jews will love him, but Caesar will kill him. Either way, they get what they want. Sounds like an ironclad plan, right? So they say, shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, I'm going to stop right there on the first point and talk about applying this because I laughed out loud when I started studying this because reading this passage, it honestly looks like it was written in 2018. Do you believe for one second that if Jesus walked on the Capitol Hill tomorrow in Washington, D.C., if he walked on the Capitol Hill tomorrow, the one thing the Democrats and Republicans would be able to, to agree on is that he needs to leave so we can get back to doing our thing. It looks like today. Those guys are horrible. Don't listen to anything they say. They're all liars. Those people are horrible. They don't love you. They don't care about anything but themselves. Blah, 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 blah. But as soon as Jesus would show up, who gave this man authority? We didn't. He keeps calling us out. How about this? Truths will take care of him and then we can get back to fighting over who's in charge. It's all about power. And this is not to say that 
Every politician has no integrity. There, there were Pharisees with integrity and there are people in government service with integrity. I'm not trying to smear those who are in civil service. I know people who are in civil service who have integrity, who are good people, who love Jesus. They're there. These folks are not them. This whole mess started because Jesus was teaching with authority that they didn't give him. And then they got mad because he told them in public that they were trying to usurp authority and glory that wasn't theirs. So what do we do? This passage strikes at the heart of our tribal tendency to pick one side and act like they're the side of God. When you go to that ballot box on Tuesday and you see an R or you see a D beside a name, notice that neither of them are a cross. Neither of them are God's party. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. I believe that this party is the moral one, that they love God. You know what's funny? That's exactly what the Jews thought about the Pharisees. Wasn't it? And yet the Pharisees were lined up with the Herodians and the Sadducees trying to kill Jesus. This because God doesn't have a party. Y'all, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It is not a democratic republic. The kingdom of God is a monarchy. We have a king. We don't vote him in. Nobody's voting him out. And the one thing that they were right about is that Jesus was not interested in people pleasing when he was telling the truth. So, this all goes to say that your allegiance to Jesus should always overshadow your allegiance to a particular party or politician. There is no party who is inherently always right. There is, however, a king who is always right. So, Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You can read that in 2018. It's some trust in elephants, some trust in donkeys, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Say, so, well, Josh, this all seems really basic. I know it does. But turn on your television and look at the number of people who are literally having panic attacks and anxiety because they are so terrified that the world is going to end if a particular party is not in power. Have you seen it? People who are panicking because they think the entire universe turns over whether or not the little picture on your TV is red or blue. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will cease from yielding fruit. That when Tuesday comes, I don't want any of you to be anxious in anything. 
Because I want you to remember what the earliest Christians remembered. That whether Rome stands or falls, whether this party is in power or that party is in power, whether this person's in the White House or that person's in the White House, whether this person's on the Supreme Court or that person's on the Supreme Court, whether the Senate goes this way or the House goes that way, whatever it looks like, the most important truth is that Jesus is still on the throne. And as Christians, that is our primary concern. And you do not need... The greatest witness you can show a world that is an abject moral and political panic is that you can show them peace, not as the world gives. Why are you not scared? Why are you not panicking? Because I have a king. That even if everything else goes wrong, the worst thing that can happen to me on this earth will just put me in his presence. What if I lose my retirement because the market goes bad? Y'all, listen, my retirement's out of this world. (laughs) It's stored away where rust cannot corrupt, nor moth eat, nor thief break in and steal. The market could go to zero tomorrow and it would be well with my soul. Wouldn't be easy here. But here is temporary. So I'm just saying, keep perspective. Keep perspective. And when somebody says, we're the moral party, whoever it is, because everybody says that, depending on who says it, you know, they're the party of God and the other party is actually demons. Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is one party of the righteous and one party that's not. Is that what it says? No, No, it says there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. There is no party of God. There's just God. So put your faith in Him. Put your trust in Him. Put your hope in Him. And don't put your hope in something that will disappoint you. It will. Keep your perspective. That Jesus didn't come to be on the right or the left. He came to be on the throne. Put Him there in your heart. Leave Him there. Don't give that to someone else that doesn't deserve it. So Jesus is not on the right or left. He's on the throne. And then second, you are not made in a political image. You are made in God's image. Every single one of you in here, man, woman, boy, girl, you're all made in God's image. You are not made in the image of Caesar. You're not made in the image of the Republican Party or the Democrat Party or the Libertarian Party or the Tory Party or the Whig Party or the Know Nothing Party or the whatever party. Pick whatever party you want. You're made in God's image. Listen to Jesus' answer. I don't understand how anybody can look at Jesus and question whether or not he was God. He was brilliant. Should we pay it or should we not? And Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. You know what's funny? They're asking Jesus about this tax and, and, and he has to ask for a coin. Who is it that he gets the coin from? 
The people who are asking him whether or not they need to pay the tax because they're so offended by the money. I know you've never seen a politician rail about how something is so evil but then take money from them. You've never seen that, have you? Yeah. Okay? Again, not all politicians are evil, but these guys are talking out of both sides of their mouth. They were hypocrites. Jesus says, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, whose image, whose icon, whose representation and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. So here's a fun fact about this, that if you pulled out, whose picture's on a $1 bill? Yeah, I, 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 I realized that might look like I didn't know who was on a $1 bill. George Washington's on a $1 bill. If you pull out a $1 bill from your wallet or your purse, who does that $1 bill belong to? You. That's why you pulled it out of your wallet or your purse. None of you would have legitimately answered that you think a $1 bill with George Washington's picture on it belongs to George Washington. But that is what the understanding of Roman currency was at the time. That when you pull out a denarius and it has Tiberius Caesar's picture on it and it says, son of the Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus and on the back it says Pontifex Maximus. When you hold that coin, there was a cultural understanding that because the coin was made in Caesar's image, it remained the property of Caesar and he was just letting you use it. So when he called for the tribute tax and Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, what Jesus is actually saying is, if this is what Caesar thinks belongs to him, this little piece of metal that is stamped with his image, if that's what he wants, give it back to him. But then his next question is, give to God the things that are God's. Now I've said it here before, sometimes what's not written in the Bible is just as important as what is written in the Bible. So Jesus asks this first question. He says, whose image and description is on this coin? Their answer is Caesar. So Jesus says, okay, if that's Caesar's, then give it to Caesar. But the question Jesus didn't explicitly ask was, now whose image is on you? Whose image are you made in? You're made in God's image, aren't you? So if what Caesar wants back is this little worthless piece of metal, give it to him. But what God wants back is what's made in his image, which is you. It's not worthless. You belong to him, not to Caesar. And that's why they marveled at him. Jesus stunned them. The simplicity and brilliance of his answer, they didn't have any comeback. Because on the one hand, Jesus is saying, what, this little worthless piece of money? This is what you're getting bent out of shape over? That man's not God and you know it. 
So if he wants this worthless little piece of metal back, give it back to him. What does it matter? But you, whose image are you made in? God's. Jesus' counsel was not just for these misguided rulers. It was for everybody who was listening. And it's still for everybody who's listening. You don't owe the Republican Party your allegiance. You don't owe the Democratic Party your allegiance. You don't owe the Libertarian Party your allegiance. Because which of them died for you? Which of them shed their blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Which of them created humanity in their image from the dust of the earth and breathed their life into his nostrils and made him a living being? None of them did. God did that. You were made in his image. He is the only one you owe allegiance. This is why I started out by talking about those little DNA kits. That human beings naturally, I think just because of the way that we're made, plus the effect to the fall, we naturally divide ourselves up into groups, don't we? You see it as early as school. Have you ever seen little kids develop cliques? You ever seen it? You can see it at daycare. The older they get, they start developing these little packs. And, 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 the, and they run around together. Uh, there's a camp that Emily and I counsel at during the summer. And there's this little group, you know, the little seven-year-old girls. It's hilarious. They have like a hive mind. That... that there's one of them that's the ringleader and all the other little girls run around with her and just basically do what she says. There's seven. There's seven. And if you ask any of those other little girls, why are you doing what you're doing? Well, she did it. We don't grow out of that as we get older, y'all. We just get better at giving reasons for why we're doing what we're doing. We just keep grouping up in little packs and we identify a leader and ultimately a lot of the reasons for what we do is they boil down to, I'm doing it because he did it. I'm doing it because she did it. I'm saying it because they said it. Y'all, that gets really damaging when we start doing that politically because what happens is you start to vilify the other people and saying they're the problem. They're the problem with the world. You know what Jesus says they are? Worth enough that he died for them. That's what Jesus says they are. Whoever they is. And as far as policy and voting is concerned, don't look at the R, don't look at the D, don't look at the L, don't look at the I. Look at your Bible. Look at the Word of God. Look at who He is. Look at the one you owe allegiance. And when you go in there and you exercise your civic duty, say, how can I honor God with this? Not honor a party. Not honor a clique. Not honor a group. Not honor... you know, How can I honor God with this? I have been known to walk in before and vote an entire ballot and leave a spot blank because I could not, in good conscience, vote for anybody in that spot. 
Well, Josh, if you don't vote for this one, the other one will win. If you don't vote for this one, that one will win. So if I don't vote for either of them, I vote for both of them? America's an amazing country. One day, I'm going to stand in front of Jesus. And I'm going to answer, not just for every vote I cast, but for every word I spoke, for every action I took. And I want to be able to stand in front of Him and say, I did it for you. I did it to honor you. I did it to obey you. Not to get anybody else's approval. I did it for you. Ask questions like this. What, what does this person stand for? Do they stand for what God stands for? Never sacrifice your loyalty to the Word of God on the altar of political victory. Never sell out to a false Messiah and never buckle to fear. Never do it. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Your group, your pack that you belong to, where your identity is, is the people of God. If you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus Christ. That should inform the decisions you make, not just at the polls, but at work, at school, at home, on vacation, in the grocery store. It should affect everything. Your identity as a Christian should be the defining characteristic of your personhood. Not your age, not your gender, not your race, not your voting history. Not your income, not your education. It should be whether or not you know Jesus. Be holy for I am holy. In Matthew 23, 9, Jesus says, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Take your little ancestry DNA stick and say, I know where I came from. I know who my father is too. And I don't need a test tube to tell me. I don't need 23 and me to tell me. In the words of my, one of my favorite musicians, I was bought by the blood, saved by the son the saints all sing about. I belong to Jesus Christ. That I have one father. He is my God in heaven. And I don't care if a senator, if a president, if a representative, if a judge or anybody else thinks they have claim on my vote. Everything, every word of my mouth belongs to Jesus. So when Tuesday comes, church, leave your anxiety at the cross and leave your loyalty with Christ. And that's all your pastor has to say about politics. So, let me give this. Talking about uh, leaving your loyalty with Christ and knowing who your Father is. Augustine, who wrote between 30 and 400 A.D., he was a North African bishop, wrote this in his confessions. It was basically a spiritual autobiography. He said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. What if I need that family? What if I need that group? What if I need that affirmation? What if I do feel like I need to belong, like I want to belong? Where can I find that? I've never found that. Come to Jesus. 
He made you for him, and your heart will be restless until it finds its rest in him. Stop trying to find it in politics. Stop trying to find it in gender. Stop trying to find it in race. Stop trying to find it in academia. Stop trying to find it in money. Find it in Jesus. I want to offer you an opportunity to leave the mess behind and come to Jesus. Miss Joyce is going to lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. And if you want to come to the king, before you worry about any other political mess, I strongly urge you, please do that. Please do that. Jesus is way more important than whatever happens on Tuesday. I want to invite you to come give your life to him and talk to him about it if you have any questions. There are a few different ways you can respond. You can either come down this aisle during the invitation hymn. I'll, I'll talk with you there. We can set up a time to talk in more detail later. You can uh, fill out your guest card. You've got one of those in your bulletin. You can fill that out and drop that in the offering plate and we'll follow up with you. Or you can catch me at the back door before we leave. Um, I just don't want you to leave without making a move if the Holy Spirit's impressing on you. You need to come to the King. So, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing an invitation hymn. It's going to be hymn number 483. And if you need to come, you come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you that you are on your throne, regardless of whatever else may happen in the world. And Lord, I pray that we would maintain a good witness for you. Not just in how we vote, Lord, but how we would speak, how we would act, how we would treat each other, how we would go to work, how we go to the grocery store, how we interact with our family and our friends, Lord, that everything we do would be beholden to you. Lord, I love you and I ask that for those in here who are hearing your Holy Spirit, tug on them. Lord, bring them to the throne, bring them to the cross, and save them. We love you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Jesus, let make the pathway glow.